welcome to the second half of my conversation with Jocelyn Deeks and Melanie Pandaya. Here we get into more details about the housing crisis, gentle density, and all of the things that go along with it. My name is Jennifer Harris, and here we go. So we know that there is a housing crisis coming. Are we already in that housing crisis? And is that housing crisis for low-income housing or middle-income housing? Like, we've got Regent Park, and, and we know that that's um, supported housing, but how do you deal with teachers and professionals and people who have higher education but cannot afford to be there? I mean, we've touched on it a little bit in NIMBYism, YESBYism, or why, YIMBYism, sorry. Um, how, like, how substantial is that number of people? I, to me, it would be a huge number. And that's what the really fascinating thing is. So when you talk about Regent housing, you're talking about social housing, rent geared to income housing. Um, and and that is a that is a really important critical uh, component of society, and often you know the purpose of that is to is to help support people who um, who need the most support. So so that on the housing spectrum is is absolutely critical. But when we talk about affordable housing these days, we're talking about housing for teachers and nurses and people who have professional degrees who find the city unaffordable and it's you know fascinating to me that i had um i had a neighbor in in the apartment building next door to me who um you know we'd spend mornings at the dog park together she was a newer teacher and and uh in high demand because she was a french immersion teacher and apparently those uh, are always in high demand and she and her husband left Toronto uh, because they couldn't afford uh, the rent in, in the purpose-built apartment building uh, next, next to me. And I'm not surprised because when I heard how much rent is in the building, and, and this, isn't, this is not a luxury building, um, I, I was floored. And I thought, I don't think I could have afforded, uh, you know, in, my, in the earliest parts of my career, I don't think I could have afforded the rent. And, and I find it really interesting, you know, we have an office of uh, really, really fantastic, dynamic, uh, intelligent um, people who are new to their careers. And I find it really interesting in a lot of cases, the living arrangements that they've worked out for themselves to work around what is an incredibly high cost of living in this city. And I would hate to think that those are the people that we're going to lose because they are absolutely the future. They're the people who create all the cool stuff. They're the chefs who create the cool restaurants we want to go to. They are the fashion designers and, you know, all of, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, or they're the nurses and the teachers that we so greatly rely on in terms of those services that they provide. So I personally think the housing crisis is already here. I think from an availability standpoint at many uh, income levels, it's extremely challenging. The competition is, is something else when I hear what people have to do to be able to rent. And if they get, you know, if they're successful, the affordability is, is pretty crushing. And so I hope that there are things that we can do to, to change that. And then also I hope there are things that we can do to improve the possibility and opportunities for people to have ownership as well. Um, you know, I think renting is certainly something that is, is extremely important and um, creates a healthy city. And I think for some people it is their lifelong choice, but I also actually think the ownership piece, you know, as North Americans, 
we we aspire to ownership and and that will be a philosophical shift that will take quite some time so i think we need to do a lot better on that front as well no yeah, no yeah no i just uh, just dovetailing from what jocelyn's saying and uh, you hear these stories about teachers as you're saying um who can't afford to live where they teach and of course, and then this ripples out because then, you know, you look at the schools that have all of this land for parking. So you have people who are driving to school. So it, it, it suddenly becomes about transportation. It becomes about land use. It becomes about all of these other things. So this idea of affordable housing, and as you said, not necessarily social housing, but affordability, affordability versus affordable housing, or, but um, it, it, is, it becomes a central piece of how your city works, right? Um, how people are like actually going to work and then how the city itself you're putting more are you putting more cars on the road because you can't afford to walk to work anymore um so it, it's it i think it changes the dynamic of the city so yeah i would think it's happening now unfortunately <laughs> the i i totally agree with with both of what you've said and and the what other cities have addressed housing housing crisis in a positive way I'm, I'm like, I, I actually can't think of anything at the moment. And I don't, I mean, that's terrible. I feel badly that I can't, but I haven't seen any major successes that have been blasted across the world so that we would know about it. You know, everybody's favorite urban planning example after Barcelona, because um, that, that's always, you know, number one in planning school. But, um, you know, Portland, Oregon's done some interesting stuff. And I think we actually started to see some reflections of that in the legislation or in the, um, sorry, in the legislation that was released earlier this week from the province, where there are minimum requirements in terms of, you know, single family houses are not something that are, um, are permitted anymore. And instead it's turned into, you know, having a couple of units and, you know, the province of Ontario last week created an enabling environment for things like if you want to have three units in your home you don't have to go through all that that permitting process you know nightmare of a process that Jen you you help people through so successfully or um, laneway houses which for a long time were very restrictive or garden suites or you know all kinds of things you know and that's what people talk about when they talk about the gentle density piece um, where that if you magnify that across an urban area, well, then you're getting a lot more of, um, of units. And, and just in case anybody thinks I, I loved all of the, the announcements from last week, I did not. Um, but I think that there were some pieces that were kind of heading in the right direction when we think about that. That's not going to solve everything, though, and we do need to start thinking about our city a little bit differently. Um, and, you know, from the, the Toronto of, of your where there is, you know, necessarily going to have to be some density that is introduced as well. Um, and that does look like taller buildings. And so then we need to think about, OK, so how are we going to do that well? Um, and I think we have had some successes and, and I think we've had a lot of growing pains on it. Um, but hopefully we can take all of that learning and, and make it a little bit more successful into the future. So we, I want to hear what Melanie has to say on that though, because she actually <laughs> has been in this, uh, you know, I'm sure Melanie spends all day looking at case studies and precedents. So well, tell us. It was funny because when you said the next city after Barcelona, I'm like, I'm just going to say Paris <laughs> because Paris is getting so much attention right now. But then I thought, you know what? 
but Paris is getting, or Amsterdam, it's a little bit older, but getting attention because of they're doing a lot with transit, right? They're taking out these streets and they're putting in bike lanes and it people, at least in the news, seem to like it. I don't know if you actually live there, whether you get the same complaints we get around Young Street, Jen. Um, but in terms of housing, I think the thing is like, if you do something dramatic, like shut down a major road and put bikes in, you can count the number of bikes who are on, that are on the street. You can count how long it takes people to get to where they're going. You can say this is, you know, it's, it's very measurable. Um, but when you look at housing, Jen, you ask what are the cities who are doing it well? I think the thing is you have these really long life cycles. So a lot of people are playing like Edmonton, they got rid of their parking uh, minimums for new developments, which is fantastic. I can't see how that's going to go wrong, but you know, it's still new. You've got places in the States who have gotten rid of their exclusionary zoning and there's sort of mixed feedback coming from there that it's sort of saying, well, okay, yes, you're not adding actually that many houses or that many units and the units you're adding are not necessarily affordable. So if you put in a triplex in Rosedale, that's not solving your, your affordability housing issues. So um, I don't have an obvious answer who's doing it well, Jen, I don't know. I think it's just, it's such a long process. And I think there's a lot of places in North America that are experiencing this kind of, okay, we've got people coming in, where are we gonna put them? That's a really good point. Cause I hadn't thought about it in that context that it's such a long life cycle before you can see anything. The, um, taking that as well as home ownership. Um, I feel like the city is sort of putting the onus a lot on home, existing homeowners to develop their house that they're living in into three units or a garden suite or um, so yes, all the uh, infrastructure that the city has to do to make that feasible is, is a little bit behind um, behind where it should be for their advancements, but because they're making these um, announcements that it, it will speed up the process, I hope. Um, how, like, is it enough? I mean, is it going to change in five or 10 years or is it gonna take 20 or 30 years for homeowners to change their existing home into a three unit place or, or spend the money, the, couple hundred thousand dollars to build a garden suite um, and then hire well not hire but find renters that they can charge rent to so that they're it's like you're the city's putting all the onus on the homeowners to do to to the um, fork out the money to to build these things and then creating this whole other level of landlords I'm I'm not sure how that's yeah, and and so I think I think it was the intention is is not so much to put the onus on on homeowners and saying you have to do this and and that kind of thing. I think the idea is to create an enabling environment where if you sort of imagine it in a different way, um, you know somebody somebody wants to you know aspires to homeownership but but can't can't afford right to to carry a house themselves or that kind of thing. You know, previously it was very challenging to build a laneway house or build a garden suite or anything like that. And that stuff, um, you know, those are things that came from the city. And then a lot of, you know, the legis enabling legislation has come at the provincial level as well, where it actually, if you think of the life cycle of a house, maybe maybe that's something that would be right for them at the right time where they can they can actually do it now, as opposed to before it was very limiting and or you were... Um, you know, would struggle to be able to do it. So 
I don't, I don't think that I think in terms of the, the big pieces of, of growth in supply that we're seeing are in, in multi-unit buildings that are coming, um, in lots of different properties, you know, around the city where, um, not single family dwelling properties per se, but, you know, old commercial lots and uh, things like that, um, where you're starting to see either infill or re redevelopment of, um, you know, a strip mall with a surface parking lot or um, things like that. And those those are contributing to, to what that supply is. But again, the life cycle is long, right? From the start of, you know, from, when, from inception, when somebody has an idea and purchases a property, it takes about three years, actually, I think longer in the city of Toronto to get permission to actually get close to being able to put a shovel in the ground. And then, you know, and that's, and that's a pretty good timeline. And then, you know, add on some other time for that before and after you get some shovels in the ground, you know, a taller building can take anywhere from three to five years to construct. So you're already talking pretty close to 10 years out from when somebody first had the idea to bring those units online that people can actually live in them. And so that's when you, when you think about that and what that timing is, if there's, you know, it's, it's that whole spectrum of helping to deal with it, which is smaller pieces of, you know, gentle density that get introduced into neighborhood, mid-rise buildings, which can be quicker to construct because there's not, they're just not as big. And, and then that's, a, that's an engineering fact, Melanie. Um, and then, uh, you know, you have taller buildings, um, which also, you know, can, um, fit a lot of people and a lot of units in them. So I think it's a whole spectrum of thing that will, things that will help to help to contribute to it. Melanie, you can elaborate a little bit more on this, I'm sure. Um, if we talk about housing and we talk about transportation, we also need parks and schools and hospitals Absolutely. and libraries. Like it's, we need something for people to do when they get here. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and that's when you look at the idea of livable cities, but um, one of the favorite, my favorite projects that I did in school was on the little park gen where our kids went to school. Um, it's a little scrubby park, um, but the things that it's actually a really successful public space and it creates a community. Um, so again, do you, how do you create that from scratch? But you need those things. Otherwise it's just people bumping around into each other going up and down an elevator. No, I, I, but I, I don't have an answer for you, but I totally agree that you need those things. <laughs> but I think those things come, I mean, and Jocelyn will know this so much more than me, but I can't help but feel like a lot of that has to come from government. You have to have, there has to be a reason why people, people work any anybody's the same like you work for incentives so if they're as a developer i would imagine like yes obviously you want your building you've got good intentions some people might argue that they don't but <laughs> um but to create that livability like having the public spaces having the school the neighborhood school having the library all of those things but so i do i feel like a lot of it has to come from government but i'm not sure if that's what you're asking sorry <laughs> oh um well i Yes, it was. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to understand is that what I'm sensing is that the government's putting the onus on homeowners to create some more dense housing. Um, but there's so much more that they need to do. And um, yes. And yes. 
Yeah. No, and I agree with Jocelyn. It, it, you have that those easier pieces to put in, like a, as you said, a smaller house is easier to build because it's smaller. <laughs> um, and hopefully that that's going to be shorter. Um, but those aren't necessarily going to change the feel of a neighborhood. But yes, you need those tall buildings just to get the people in. But then in terms of the stuff that goes around it. Um, and if you're building near transit, that's one thing because presumably you're in an established neighborhood. So if you build something at Young and St. Clair, you've got parks that are already there. Um, but when you're building farther out, I don't know exactly what that looks like. And there are, so there are some things, some of those components are secured through the development process. So parkland dedication, whether it's an actual dedication of land or it's cash in lieu, which then the city sort of takes a pot of that and, and looks at, you know, building future parks and, and that kind of thing. So some of that does get secured. Uh, some of it, you know, there are we're in a new regime now called the community benefits charge, where there is a certain percentage of the value of the land that um, developers are required to pay. It used to be called, it was, used to be a thing called section 37, if anybody's ever heard that term. And now we're in the community benefits charge regime. We don't, we're still figuring out how that's gonna look like. Pretty new, got confirmed at the end of September. So we'll, we'll see how that unfolds. And the intention of those dollars are that they are intended to then go into you know, things like community centers and, and those types of things. Um, however, then there are, you know, things like schools and hospitals, and, and that's where the province comes in. And the province um, has that, that kind of responsibility to examine um, populations and what's happening. And I think all of it works a lot more slowly than anybody likes. And, and I, I get it, because I think people's frustration, you know, with schools, kids, being bust, portables, all of those types of things are, are tremendously valid. Um, and so I think all of it just isn't, you know, it's this, it's this, uh, nothing, nothing's really working in sync as well as it should. And I think uh, that can be really frustrating. I have a quick question if I can, Jen. Um, so I understand all the sections 37, that the money should go towards these um, amenities. But is there anything that I guess, incentivizes them to be well-designed public spaces, like community centers that people use or parks that people use, sort of, you sort of see these big tall buildings with a park that's tucked in behind that's kind of a private space, so then nobody really uses them. Um, so just that sort of question. Yeah, so um, when there is a, you know, when there is a requirement either for money or the in some cases it's an actual space contribution for um, things like parks and community centers, um, the city does run those processes. So they're not designed by the private sector. The city actually runs them, does it, you know, uh, runs the process, works with the applicant, but it has specific requirements and then they run their own consultation process. Um, you know, where I think, because there's, there's a few different types of space, um, parks usually have a requirement to front onto a major road. So that, that is, there is a policy there, but obviously sometimes things change. Um, and also there are things called privately owned public spaces that get secured on title through the development process where it is private, still privately owned. So the land has not been dedicated to the city for the city's ownership. Usually the reason why that happens is because it is encumbered 
underground below grade by a parking garage. So the city says, no, thanks. We, we, we don't want land that's encumbered. We only want unencumbered land, which makes sense. So you have these privately owned public spaces. Those are privately designed. Those are, but, but there are requirements that they be publicly accessible. And I think sometimes, you know, those started quite frankly as a pilot project uh, a handful of years ago, a while ago now. And I think they've gotten better and better over time because the city has started, you know, everybody and not just the city, right? It's the landscape architects, it's the architects, it's, you know, people want spaces to be successful. So, because it doesn't do anybody any good if they've got an unsuccessful space outside of, you know, their building or whatever. So I think we're getting a little bit better at that design and thinking about, you know, how they get used and, and that kind of thing. Um, and actually, I find that that's something interesting as well when we do community consultation that people actually talk about those spaces and um you know what they like about you know if there's one that already exists or what they would like to have and that kind of thing and, and that is something that can ultimately make a real contribution to the neighborhood and you know you talked about your small scrubby park that that you were involved in that became a community gathering space you imagine if you had a number of those around, right, where it is those smaller spaces, but you could sit, you could read a book in the sun, you could have some coffee, you could, with your children, you know, um, uh, gather with another parent, things like that. So I think we're getting better at it um, and uh, in terms of how they are designed, but it really depends what type of space it is, who governs that process and, and how it gets um, it gets rolled out. So this is a good segue into uh, talking about new building or building new versus retrofitting. The um, it's it's more inherently more complicated to retrofit something, and it's much easier to build. But we have these massive buildings that are just standing there, and they're they add character to the community. They add character. It's our history. It's um, and they're useful spaces. They have benefits. They're not these environmentally, it is much, much better to use an old building than to tear it down and build it back up. Mm -hmm. Who wants to go first? Yeah, this is such a tough one. <laughs> um, it's such a tough one. And because um, Melanie's right, environmentally, usually it is better. They are tremendously complicated projects. I mean, depending on the condition of the building and those types of things. It can often be very disappointing for people to discover that buildings have been so neglected or severely compromised over time that it, it genuinely doesn't make sense. We have a lot of buildings, and this is particularly an issue with older purpose-built apartment buildings, because those things, you know, those things were built like tanks, right? And, and they were, <laughs> except often mechanically, you know, their life cycle, the system, like it's, it is, worse to try and retrofit and keep them going. And there's not a ton of examples of that, but, th but they do exist where um, they are really environmentally unfriendly. Uh, and there's some interesting consultants who do work on examining that carbon footprint and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, but I, I also, listen, I get torn all the time because I, there are buildings in this city that, you know, are beautiful. There are buildings in the city that aren't beautiful, but they but they are part of our city and our fabric, and and I like that too. And um, so I think that can be really challenging when when you have that sort of um, conundrum of this is a great site. What do you do with it? Um, 
I mean, a lot of it is driven by a pro forma because buildings are very expensive to build. They are all risk, right? And and um, so I think a lot of the time it does come down to that. Um, but there's a lot of other factors that go into it as well. And I think historically for the last hundred years, maybe a little less, 75, Toronto, Toronto's been pretty vicious in terms of tearing down some pretty incredible structures. And um, that's not something that I wanna, I wanna see repeated or, or continue for sure. Melanie, thoughts? I don't have a lot. Like I just, um, I know what you're saying. Like you, it's, you kind of, you, you, you balance the idea of something that is going to be maybe more sound, um, but then you do lose, even as you said, it might be the ugliest building on the street, but it's one you've got a history with, or you've just always seen it. Um, so it's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. And then there's, there is something sort of sad about getting the uniformity of everything built at the same time. Right, like you do want those bits and pieces to, um, but then I also hear, you know, Heritage Toronto can be a real problem for people who are trying to build density in. Um, so, and it sort of adds another layer of complexity to that long process that's, that's already there. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Mal, Jocelyn, and you're both absolutely right. You're very, very good points. Um, it, it is the cost of retrofitting these buildings and uh, you never know what you're going to find. Um, on top of trying to bring these buildings up to today's building codes and environmental standards, it's a challenge. I mean, let's take, let's take Maple Leaf Gardens, for example. It's a beautiful history beautiful historical building and it was an incredible architectural feat to retrofit it from what it was to what it is today um, but someone made the decision decades ago to try and preserve the building uh, or the facade of the, of the building so they decided to seal the grout but in doing so, the moisture had to go somewhere and it went into the bricks and then the bricks started to deteriorate. So it's frustrating. I mean, you make the decision to get in there and, and there is risk, um, but it can be just one thing after another. So um, they are, these buildings are history. They are the fabric of our culture. And so, I mean, it's, it's weighing the costs versus our history and our culture. And, and that will be different for, for every project. But I think if we try, or at least if we examine every project um, carefully and we try to preserve them, then, then it's, we're not giving up. I mean, if architects and designers and, um, developers and city officials at least try to preserve it or try to ex examine what is involved in preserving these buildings. I think we're preserving our history, we're preserving all cult all, our culture. And, and then we, we just make the decision based on, on that. And if we don't try, that's tragic. So anyway, thank you. Um, for listening to me. Um, I, I 
think we uh, I think we have covered a lot today, and um, this was really interesting to talk to both of you. So thank you, thank you very much. Um, uh, and of course, I have to ask if uh, if people want to reach you or or find you, uh, where where can they find you? I'm I'm probably most easily reached through the um, Bosefields company website. So that's B O U S F I E L D S dot C A. Um, and or our Instagram is our Instagram's pretty cool. Um, and I'm not being vain. I I don't run it, but um, <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty cool and it's pretty fun. So uh, easily reach through either of those options. Okay. And Moni, how would you like to be reached? I'm happy for people to reach me through you, Jen, if that's okay with you, that would be fantastic. Completely fine. And uh, that would be our Distilling Design Podcast website. So um, all questions can be directed to, uh, to Melanie through that website and I will forward them off to her. Um, so thank you very much, both of you for, um, for your time and your enormous amount of information. Um, wealth of knowledge and uh, I really appreciate it thank you thanks so much Jen it's been really fun and thanks Jocelyn yeah. it was great great talking with you uh, you too um <laughs> very fun and and I look forward to hearing kind of what your next steps are and thanks so much Jen for having us here mm -hmm.